Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. moving time of prayer. Let's consider what's the point. (laughs) I was driving home from work a few months back when I heard an interview on the radio on the subject of atheist churches. Apparently, so I learned, um, atheists like quite a lot of what we do. Uh, We meet regularly, we have a sense of purpose, we do good in the community, we listen to talks on how to live better lives, And if they could take God out of it, there are plenty of atheists who would quite like to share in what we have. Hence, atheist churches. They actually exist. And as I listened to the interview, I began to mull this over. To me, the idea of a church without God is conceptually rather like going to a football match where there's no ball. (laughs) I mean, you could fill a stadium. You could watch 22 players run around. You could cheer for your team, you could sing songs, you could berate the ref, and you could moan about how VAR is ruining the beautiful game. But I would struggle to feel fulfilled after 90 minutes if there had been no ball on the pitch at any time. It gives meaning to everything else that has taken place so far. Still, they say that copying is the highest form of flattery. And if atheists are copying some of what we do, I wonder how it might look in practice. I can see how the sermon could be replaced with a talk on philosophy or ethics. That should work. And I presume that there might also be some singing. If so, I suppose the first song ought to be something practical, leading into the new year and resolutions, something. Strength will rise as I go down to the gym. I must go down to the gym. (laughs) And then, presumably, the songs would build towards a suitably meaningful crescendo, something for the hand raisers among us, Something along the lines of, Shout to the void, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to nothing. (laughs) Still, there is one aspect of what we do that is going to be very tricky to replicate if you're determined to eliminate God from the church experience. It's prayer. I mean, how would that work within an atheist framework? You couldn't very well say anything because who would you say it to? You could sit there in silent meditation instead, but I don't think that would work either because I suspect that God, knowing his sense of humor, would probably show up and start giving people pictures and visions and words and things, and I'm not sure that would be so well received within that environment. So I think they'd have to ditch prayer altogether without trying to replace it with anything else. Conversely, we are not trying to do church without God, quite the opposite. So we can have prayer, we can have lots of prayer, but, and let's be honest here for a moment, does it actually do any good? What's the point? Are prayers really answered, or, as the atheist might proclaim, are we just kidding ourselves? This has been a tough, tough year for Chilton, in which we have seen some very big prayers not answered. God tells us to pray. Jesus modelled it for us, but still, I think it's legitimate to ask, what's the point? Unless we can be unafraid to ask that question and to try to answer it, then we have nothing meaningful to say to atheists anyway. 
This is going to be more of a personal testimony than a sermon in the traditional sense, a talk on my journey on the subject of prayer over the past few months. This may not mirror anyone else's experience, and I'm not trying to model anything, but what I am hoping to achieve is to encourage people to think about prayer differently. Then each of us can draw his or her own conclusions and test them against scripture. Prayer is so vast a topic that ideally I'd like a couple of hours to try and cover the main bases, but ideally you'd like to have lunch before mid-afternoon, so I will try to keep the time if you will excuse me for only covering this topic from two angles rather than giving it the more rounded treatment that a longer talk would permit. As we've been approaching the end of 2019, I have felt that I had some unfinished business with God on the subject of prayer. As a church, we lost some people this year, fellow church members as well as members of our family who may not themselves have attended Chilton. And of those people, the one I knew best felt closest to and whose passing hit me the hardest was Kath Steeples. For anyone who didn't know her, Kath was about my age and she left behind a husband and two primary school aged children. And I prayed for her as I've never prayed for anything in all my life. As a church, we'd have to go back nearly 20 years to find the last time I can recall Chilton collectively praying so earnestly at the same time for the same thing. And let me say, I wasn't praying hopefully, I was praying expectantly. Notwithstanding the fairly early terminal diagnosis, I expected Kath to recover, and I was genuinely surprised when she didn't. Consequently, when Kath wasn't healed, I needed to reevaluate my prayer life. What is it? What's it for? Does it work? And why do it? Spiritually empty and I was still being asked to be on prayer teams at a time when I felt like I had absolutely nothing to offer. Praying with and for people was the very last church-related activity that I felt up for. I shared this with Jason and Nikki, and Nikki suggested that I would do well to find a book by Philip Yancey on the subject of prayer. She didn't recommend a specific book, just an author and a topic, so I bought Philip Yancey's Prayer Does It Make Any Difference. It's a good book. Reading through the perspectives outlined in the book, Yancey's own and those of so many of his contributors, has caused me to look again at this topic, which is both vast and complex on the one hand, and yet very simple on the other. If there is any wisdom in what follows, it was lifted straight out of the book, but any remaining confused thoughts are mine. The two angles from which I would like to examine prayer are engagement and perspective. So let's start with engagement. Prayer is, in some senses, a mystery. And it is perhaps a comfort to know that greater minds than ours have acknowledged that they do not understand it fully. When a doctoral student at Princeton asked, what is there left in the world for original dissertation and study, Albert Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. And if we are going to examine prayer, Let's be honest about the real motivation behind so many of our prayers. The Roman statesman Cicero put it rather bluntly. He said, we do not pray to Jupiter to make us good, but to give us material benefits. It's been 2,062 years and 22 days since Cicero's death, and I would say that not much has changed. How many of us can say that we have spent as much time asking God to make us better people as we have uh, spent asking him 
to give us what we want, or what we think we want, and what do we really want anyway? Prayer is at its most authentic when we're praying for something that we do truly, really want. If I see a news item about people I don't know suffering in circumstances I haven't experienced and cannot relate to, I might pray for them, but not with the same intensity of feeling as I would use if, say, I had lost my car keys and I was late for an important meeting and I really wanted God to help me find those keys now. I know the keys are far less important than the suffering people, but my personal investment in the keys is greater. Although prayer for things that seem distant may not be a strength of mine, there are those who do pray earnestly and at length into situations on the other side of the world. And I would like to suggest that the difference between those who do this and those who can barely manage a narrow prayer is that the people who do pray faithfully about the distant situation have first aligned their hearts with God's heart on the matter. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause is likely to be prayed before anything is actually said on behalf of the people who are suffering but are not personally known to those praying. If we are not personally invested in the things about which we talk to God, then the conversation is very surface level. Like at networking events when you're introduced to someone who you have no desire to know but with whom you must exchange a few pleasantries. I've been there a lot. How many times have our prayers been the equivalent of remarking to God that there has indeed been a great deal of weather recently? For me, it happens every time I'm asked to pray for my friend's neighbor's aunt's cousin in a situation where I've been asked to pray for something, I've promised to do it, and God and I know that I'm really not remotely invested in the outcome. The quality of the resulting prayer in terms of my connection with God is exactly what you might expect. By contrast, I don't think I could have been more engaged when I prayed for Kath. I truly think that her illness engaged me in prayer as nothing before ever has. Initially, I had hoped to find some answers as to why she didn't recover, but I have no answers and I no longer seek them. Still, I believe that if God had chosen to furnish me with any answers, then they would have been found under our second heading, the heading of perspective. When we engage with God, the natural starting point is to pray from our own perspective. It grants us authenticity in our communication. It enables us to be who we think we are, to present ourselves before God, and to petition him as so many people have before us. Whether it be Abraham pleading with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, whether it be the psalmist in Psalm 6 crying out, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? It is, however, wise to remember that God's perspective is not ours. Isaiah 55.8 reminds us with these famous words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Let us remember who is praying to whom. And if our prayer lives ever hit a dry patch, then it might be worth checking whether primarily we pray to ask how we may serve God or to inform him how he might serve us. I don't recall spending much time asking God how I could serve him during Cass' illness. I just remember telling him what I wanted him to do. Well, Philip Yancey has something to say about perspective. He's famous as an author, but he's actually a very accomplished climber as well. 
and he has written about the changing vantage points that you have at different stages during your climb. Three hours in, as you rest at 11,000 feet, you can see people who are just beginning their climb on the same mountain. From this vantage point, you can see the climbers below you, and you can see a good deal more besides. Whereas from their vantage point, all they can see at their level is each other and their immediate surroundings. But from your vantage point, 11,000 feet up, you can see so much more of what is going on at their stage of the climb than they can. And so it is with God. From his vantage point, we are deeply significant as individuals, but at the same time, he sees a far bigger picture than we do at our level. We pray for X to happen because we can only contemplate X and we like the idea of it. Were we sitting 11,000 feet higher, we might also see Y and Z and the extent to which X happening or not happening would affect them. Joseph might well have prayed that Potiphar would believe him rather than his wife so that Joseph would be spared a wholly unjust jail sentence. But had Joseph not gone to jail, he would never have met Pharaoh's cupbearer. Had he never met Pharaoh's cupbearer, he would never have been brought before Pharaoh. Had he not been brought before Pharaoh, then millions more would have died in the famine, including Jacob and the sons through whom God's people were going to be uh, created. Scripture does not tell us whether Joseph prayed about the incident with Potiphar's wife, but hindsight tells us that if he did, a prayer to endure would have been a better prayer than one to avoid jail. This is, I think, why Proverbs 19.21 is such a comfort. There may be many plans in my heart, but thank God it is his purpose and not mine which prevails. That said, at other times people have prayed for miraculous interventions and have received them. God seemingly pleased to grant the requests of his servants. We cannot always see why, but we can trust God. We can ask for what we want as Jesus did, but Luke 22:42 gives us both halves of the prayer as Jesus prayed it. On the one hand, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. On the other hand, yet not my will but yours be done. As a church, we have been challenged over the last few years to pray more boldly than we have at any other time during the 20-odd years in which I have been a regular here. We have been taught to embrace the possibility of the miraculous, to believe in our authority in Christ, and to use it to do big things. And my Christian walk has been much enriched by having the opportunity to explore a side of my faith that I had previously all too rarely even considered. But I feel as we come to the end of 2019, which has seen us take a couple of apparent defeats, and I say apparent because we're not 11,000 feet up and we can't see the whole picture, and so our perspective is bound to be incomplete, but still. It is as well to offer some specific encouragement to those who have fought and this time not seen victory. And so I will share a couple of quick thoughts. The first is a direct quote from Philip Yancey, in which he gives his take on the miraculous. He said, I believe in miracles, but I also believe they are miracles, meaning rare exceptions to the normal laws which govern the planet. I cannot, nor can anyone, promise that prayer will solve all problems and eliminate all suffering. The second is also from his book. If you are dealing with the fallout of seemingly unanswered prayer, you are in the company of Christ himself. We tend to think of the miracles of Jesus, the closeness of his walk with the Father, and to assume, therefore, that all of his prayers must have been answered. But consider the 
prayer in John 17, 21, where Jesus prayed for unity among believers. How did that pan out? To date, there are believed to be about 34,000 church denominations and sects. So I would venture that prayer for unity is at best still in the pending list, more than 2,000 years after Jesus himself prayed it. In conclusion, I will say that my prayer life has been through a transitional phase since Cass's passing. My way of rebuilding it involved spending less time asking God for things, although there is nothing wrong, of course, with doing so. Jesus did, and he told us to do likewise, but there needs to be balance. And after Cass's passing, I spent more of my prayer time just being with God than I had before. I would marvel at his glory, his character, what he has done for me, and I was then able to rejoice in the fact that I don't need to understand why bad things happen. It's actually very liberating to be able to say to God, there must be a reason why such and such a thing happened, but it isn't necessary for me to be the one who understands. I can leave that with you and I can trust you. Since adopting that style of prayer, I have had moments of intimacy with God, the like of which I've only ever experienced before at rare intervals. Now I can experience that more regularly. My worship isn't standing on a stage with a musical instrument because God is not deaf. He knows that I can't play any musical instrument and neither God nor I would relish the noise that would ensue were I to try to worship him in that way. He gave me Allah so that tuneful worship might reach his ears from within my home without my needing to be involved. And this arrangement is working very well both for God and for me. Though do spare a thought for Allah. I think that if I am to progress, I will soon need to add to my prayer some time spent seriously asking God to change me, to align my desires with his, to tell me what he really wants, and then I can begin once again to pray with more confidence for bigger things, both for other people and for me. In answer, therefore, to the question of prayer, what's the point? I think it's important to remember that the point of prayer is communion with God not access to a magic lamp that will grant us three wishes on demand. During Kat's illness, I lost sight of it. And I think it's worth repeating. The point of prayer is communion with God. So let's finish where we began with our atheists. Show us your miracles, they might quite legitimately say to me. I have none, I must reply. Except, of course, that in a world which can encourage people to fixate on identities that are either wholly false or so incomplete as to be unhelpful, I know who I am. I know that I am truly, deeply loved by the very creator of the universe. I am no cosmic accident. I am who he says I am. I am a child of God. It's not the miracle I prayed for earlier this year, but it's what I'm left with. And to my surprise, I find that it's enough. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.